Yeah, happy Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday, of course, is the Sunday that we do celebrate the resurrection. You know, for those of us who believe in Jesus, we celebrate his uh, resurrection from the dead. And but it's more than that as well. It's that we're seeking to we're seeking God's presence that our faith might be strengthened and resurrected. But also, we want to seek uh, faith to be resurrected in the world around us as well. Before I get into the meaning and and the purpose of Easter and the resurrection, I want to spend a good chunk of time looking at the clues that point to the resurrection of Jesus being a true historical event. We're told in Scripture that Jesus came to die for our sin and that he rose again from the dead in order to give us new life and to give us eternal life, that we might have hope beyond the grave. And if we're wrong about that, if Christians are wrong about the resurrection of Jesus, then we're wrong about everything else. We're wrong about absolutely everything else. And in my experience and in my lifetime, the only major thing that Christians got wrong was Harry Potter. (laughs) But we've since repented. (laughs) Now we're okay with Harry Potter. So let's make sure we're, we're, we're not being those who are wrong about the resurrection. I hope today that if your faith is weak, that this will strengthen you in some way. I do hope that if you don't have faith, my goal today, and this should be no surprise, is to win you over to belief in Jesus. And if you don't like that, then why are you in church on Easter? <laughs> Maybe you've lost your faith. I, I hope to restore it as well today. I hope that God... We'll restore it today. Wikipedia claims that Jesus lived and died. Thankfully, we have more reliable sources than Wikipedia. We have, there are all credible historians will tell you, whether they're people of faith or not of faith, all credible historians will tell you that Jesus was a real man who was crucified on a cross. And so the question that we must answer is, Do we believe, can we believe, can we find the faith to believe the Bible's claims that he rose from the dead? Now, a miracle like a resurrection is, should be no more difficult to believe in than belief in God. If you believe that there's a higher power, you believe that there must be something out there, that it's not just the hard fact of life or just, there's just matter and nothing else. If you're open-minded that there's something metaphysical uh, about reality, that there, there is a God, there could be a God, then it's only logical to also believe that miracles are possible. Because if you have an original creator who made everything, then it's actually less work for that creator to tweak a few things along the way. And that's what miracles are. How can all of these first century Jewish people, thousands upon thousands of them, suddenly have put their faith in Jesus? Do you know how hard it is to convince people to change their religion? Do you know how hard that is? People who have grown up with holy scriptures, they've been catechized into their religion, they've gone through the texts over and over, they've memorized big chunks of, the, of scripture. How could it be that thousands, upon, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, non-Jews, turning to Jesus to the point where they were willing to be tortured to death for this new faith, this new way of Jesus? Let's pray, and then let's turn to the Scripture. Lord, we thank you for Resurrection Sunday. We thank you for the joy 
that we have in you. And I pray today that you would strengthen our faith, that you would deepen our faith, and that for those that are not sure or who are far away, that you would show them the way today, the way of Jesus does not disappoint. We pray that you would do your amazing, miraculous work in the hearts of people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's turn to Mark 16. It says this, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Now, we don't have forensic evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, but we do have historical evidence. We have historical testimony to this. We know that in court cases, after I'm sure we've watched too much law and order, but we know that court cases are often decided by eyewitnesses, the key eyewitness, the person that saw it, or a few people that saw what happened, or video footage that happened decides a case. We know that eyewitness testimony is a form of evidence, and that's the kind of evidence that Christians have. Now, we still have to have faith. It still takes faith to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but... It's faith based on evidence. And so today, I want to ask you to have an open mind, to open up your imagination and to journey along to look at the evidence that you might find faith. You know, there's reasons to believe in the Big Bang, right? But doesn't it take a lot of faith to also believe that not just our planet and the planets in our solar system and the Milky Way or the entire cosmos and all the galaxies and all the universes, and if, the, if there's a multiverse as well, that all of that could be compressed into something the size of a quarter. Well, that's what science tells you. Were you there? Did you see that? It's a lot of faith to believe that. There's reasons that faith is based on reasons. Just as Christians, we have reasons for our faith. I'm going to go through six evidences, six evidences of the resurrection. And one of the first ones we see here, we see in the passage I read, is we have these three female companions of Jesus that show up at the tomb. That brings me to my first point, which is the testimony of women. Now, 
Back in this day and age, 2,000 years ago, women's testimony was not admissible in court. They weren't thought particularly highly of in this regard, and so even women were less educated in that day. Many, you know, there were some women that were educated, but majority not educated, and so their reliability wasn't really counted upon. Uh, that was the, the mentality at the time. It seems hard for us to imagine that, but that's the way it's probably been in most of history until more recent history. And so if these are the first witnesses, these are the first people discovering the empty tomb, if you were going to make up, if you were going to fabricate that Jesus rose from the grave, it would hurt your case to make women the first witnesses of this event. It just doesn't make sense. Now, does that point prove that Jesus rose from the dead? Of course it doesn't. It doesn't prove that. But what it does indicate is that it's this indicates truthfulness. It indicates it's more likely to be true because of the nature of the circumstances. Point number two is the time frame in the tomb. The time frame in the tomb. Jesus was in the tomb for three days. Now, because of the details, because of the, the historicity of Jesus' life and all the writings around it, it's not a tenable approach just to deny these things, just to say, well, they just were completely made up. As I said, most historians, whether they believe or not, say Jesus was a real person who died on a cross. And so it's not tenable. So you have to grapple with the details of this. And there are many people that claim that Jesus, well, maybe he wasn't resurrected. Maybe he just recovered. Maybe that was the answer. He just, he just revived in the tomb and, and came out of it. Now, the problem with this is that if you look at the nature of Roman crucifixion, you have to ask yourself, what's more likely? Was it more likely that Jesus could have survived his wounds and recovered, or more likely that he was actually murdered to death brutally and then resurrected, as the Bible claims? Consider this, that Jesus was flogged, that the skin on his back was shredded. He lost enormous amounts of blood. He was in this cold tomb for three days without water, without food, without medicine. And if he did revive in the tomb and came to, he would have to roll this very large stone away. Then we're also told that after this, that he had conversations with people and that he actually walked by foot to another town, which probably would have taken about a day at least. To believe that somebody could do all those things after Roman torture and crucifixion is the same faith as to believe that he was resurrected. So why not just believe that he was resurrected? The third evidence is the problem of the body snatchers. The problem of the body snatchers. People will say, well, maybe his body was taken by some people, maybe the disciples, maybe the Romans. And when the women showed up at the tomb, they just invented a fairy tale. They just, it was just it became a myth because he, just, he was gone. So then they, they built this mythology around Jesus being alive from the dead. Well, let's start with the disciples here on this one. Jesus' tomb not only had been sealed with this large stone, which would have been a large disc-shaped object, would have weighed about one to two tons, very difficult to move. They would have needed a lot of people to actually move this thing. It would have been originally set up and then rolled downwards, so you're working against gravity to get it back up. Um, not only that, but the Romans would have sealed it as well with an insignia. They would have 
put this special seal on it, and if anyone had broken that seal, they'd be punished by death. The disciples had abandoned Jesus. They'd fled in fear. They weren't planning a, a body heist, a hoax to say, let's steal the body and then claim that he's back from the grave. They were running for their lives. They had fled. They had no plan to do this. What about the Romans? The problem with the Romans stealing, stealing the body is that they had no motive. There's no motive for the Romans to do this. The Romans wanted to squash any insurrection, any revolutionary who would rise up to threaten their power. They had a lot of interest in using the power of the state to completely dominate and exterminate those types of people, to keep Roman rule and Roman law and order happening. And the last thing they would have wanted would to have been turned, to turn Jesus into this mythological person who had risen from the dead. They, they would have kept his body in that grave. And if they had moved it, they could have just told people later on, we actually moved the body. Here's the actual grave site. And if it was close enough to the time, they could have actually verified that it was Jesus' body. But of course, these things did not happen. The fourth evidence we have is the empty tomb and the absent shrine. The empty tomb and the absent shrine. It's curious to think about this, that most key religious leaders, in fact, all key historical religious leaders, have a grave site and have a shrine. You could get on a plane right now and fly, you could go and see Abraham's tomb. We've got a list here of these. Abraham has said he's buried in the cave of the patriarchs in the West Bank city of Hebron. There's some doubt. Some, some people doubt this, but there's at least a grave site there saying that's where Abraham is buried. You could get a, a plane ticket today and go and see his grave site. Then number two, we have David. He said he's buried in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. You can go and see his grave site. You can look up on Google images, on Google photos. You can look up pictures of David's uh, grave. Number three, we have Confucius, buried in Kufar, uh, China. You could get on a plane and go and look at his grave. His bones are in there. Number four, Buddha. His ashes are, ashes are at the uh, Putnam Museum in India. Number five, Muhammad is buried in Saudi Arabia. You can look it up. You go on YouTube and look at videos of people chanting outside of his gravesite. Number six, Gandhi, buried in Delhi in India. Beautiful gravesite. Actually, you can look it up on Google Earth. You can go and, or you can buy a plane ticket and go then. And this last one, most significant of all, Elvis. <laughs> buried at Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. People did actually try and steal Elvis's body. That's a true story. They, that's why they moved it there. That last one's a joke, if you couldn't tell. It's curious, isn't it? Jesus is more influential, more well-known, more popular, more believed in than any of these other people. Yet he doesn't have a gravesite. There's no shrine for him. How do we explain this? How do we make sense of this? How can the most influential person in all of human history who divides time, how can he have no gravesite? Well, the answer is actually very simple, is that the first century Christian believers who saw him resurrected, they were so convinced that, he, that it was him, that he had come back. They were so convinced of it that his temporary burial, the three days that he was buried for, had no meaning, no significance whatsoever. 
It just didn't matter. No one had the thought, we better, we better mark this location. We better set up something special here because this is going to be important. It, it didn't even occur to them because he was alive. It didn't matter. The place didn't matter. And of all these people, Jesus is the only one of them who claimed to be God. And he also claimed not only that he was God, but that he would come back from the dead, that he, he predicted, he prophesied his own death and resurrection. You've got to understand, C.S. Lewis pointed this out, no good teacher makes that claim. You've only got three options with Jesus. Either he was crazy, he was a con man, or he's God. Or he was telling the truth. Those are the only options with Jesus. The fifth evidence that we see is the vast amount of eyewitnesses. The vast amount of eyewitnesses. There were hundreds of people that claimed to have seen Jesus alive after his death. And one of the things that's a game changer for Christians is understanding this, that these stories weren't passed down as oral tradition. This is one of the big things that's misunderstood about the Bible. People think, oh, it's just oral, right? It's just oral and then written down a lot later on. That's actually not the case, especially with the New Testament, that the people that saw it wrote it down in their own lifetimes. And so what we have today in Scripture was written from the very beginning, that we might have confidence in it, that our faith may rest upon it. The Bible tells us that it was written to give us that confidence. The people that saw it wrote it down. Now, people will ask, well, is there anything outside of the Bible that can validate this? Anything that can, that can point to its truthfulness or that could, any outside sources? And of course, there's a problem with that. I mean, you have historians like Josephus, who's a Jew who wrote about Jesus, a man of, of wondrous works. So you have, you have sources outside the Bible that re refer to these things, but the people that actually witnessed the resurrection that believed in it, guess what happened to all their writings? They were put in the Bible. That's what the Bible is. And so people looking for things outside the Bible, it's, it's a problem with the setup of the question. Is Well, if you're looking for, for ev more evidence, well, that's what qualified it to get put in here, is that all those people met Jesus saw him alive, and was spreading this message around the world that Jesus had risen from the grave. It's a powerful story, not just a story, but powerful history. And the people, because the people were alive at this time, it could have been, they could have been examined, they could have been questioned. The disciples who wrote this, the followers of Jesus who wrote this stuff, they you could go around and interview them. If, if you were reading the accounts of Jesus and hearing the message of Jesus, you could, you're saying, is this true? You could go around and actually ask people. You could cross-examine it. You can't fabricate something that's where lots of, you can go around and question lots of people and ask them, is this true? Because they could just deny it. And they, those people were tortured to death for these beliefs. They've done textual analysis on the Bible, there's a whole science behind this, and we can tell that different authors wrote the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other writers of the New Testament, that different, written by different people, different styles, different perspectives on the story of Jesus. And from history, we know that we have, I think it's over 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts as well, and over 9,300 
manuscripts in other languages. We just have this enormous volume of documents of the New Testament. And they all say the same thing. They all harmoniously agree Jesus wasn't just born, didn't just live an amazing, incredible life, didn't just give us some of the highest moral teaching, the highest moral teaching ever spoken upon the earth, wasn't just crucified, but also rose from the dead. That leads me to the last evidence of Jesus, is that people respond as you would expect. There is a psychological consistency to the accounts that we read in the Bible. They're not glamorized. These people are not portrayed in strange ways where they're false characters that are created. They're not heroic. They're actually afraid. They ran away in fear and trembling. We read that in the passage. These people appear as real people. Imagine this. Imagine that a dead relative showed up on your doorstep, knocked on your door. And you answer the door. Of course, you're extremely shocked, thinking, did I eat a strange mushroom? Or what's going on? Am I dreaming? What's happening? And you find out they're back from the dead. And you invite them in and you have a drink with them and make some food for them. And you start calling your friends and family and say, you won't believe who's back. What are they going to say? They're going to say, you're insane. You have to be insane. And then you say, well, just come over and see. Just come over. If you were insane, the story would be told to just a few people that you're insane, that you, you see dead people. But what if everyone that came around started to see, oh, this person is alive? How many people would, it wouldn't take that many people for the story to spread. You can't spread such a wild, exaggerated story like this so quickly without it being true. Now, you may say, well, I still have doubts. Not sure about my doubts. And it's these, these six points together that we've looked through. They, the collective weight of them give us reasons. They give us intellectual cohesiveness to say, all right, there are good reasons to believe this. Still takes faith. Still takes faith. You might say, I've got barriers. I've got doubts. I'm not sure about it. I say, well, aren't they just... What about all the contradictions in the Bible? Well, don't you know there's over a, a thousand PhD level papers on every verse of the Bible being examined and tested? That every, every seeming contradiction, you just go beneath the surface, you look at the history, you look at the context, you look at the language, and you realize, oh, there's a, actually, no, there, there are no contradictions in the Bible. I haven't found one yet. I've been looking because I'm a skeptical person. I haven't found one yet. I say, what about all the pointless evil and suffering in the world? How do you know it's pointless? Couldn't an infinite God have infinite reasons for allowing evil and suffering, even for a, a temporary period of time? You might say, isn't it so exclusive, though? Christianity is so exclusive. The problem is all systems of belief, all worldviews are exclusive. Even secular ideology is just as exclusive as Christianity. You might say, what about the record of Christians? Christians have done such horrible, terrible things. How can I believe? Well, you don't judge the founder and the teachings of any religion based on its followers because there's people of every belief system in the world that do terrible things. Just find the worst atheists in the world and make the same claim. Well, atheism can't be true based on the worst atheists that have lived. 
these objections, they fall apart, they crumble. When we start pushing on them, you start pushing on them, they, they crumble away, they fall away because they're, they're like toy arguments that we have that don't really have any validity to them. If you have big questions about life, you want to go on a spiritual journey, I want to recommend a resource to you that we have. We have this website we've set up called somethingmore.life. .life is like a .com, somethingmore.life. You write that down. We answer a lot of these big life questions. Share that, check that out if you're interested in that. To have faith in God is the same faith as it takes to have faith in human rights. Did you know there's no scientific basis for human rights? It can't be proven. Where do human rights come from? They actually come from the Bible. They come from the first book of the Bible. They come from Genesis that teaches that human beings are made in the image of God. So if you believe in human rights, you believe in something theological. There's no rationale behind it. It's a leap of faith. It takes the same faith to believe in God. At Trinity Church, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he's alive forevermore, and that we have good reasons to have that level of faith. In my own life, it's been a joy and quite an exciting thing to learn about the history of the Christian faith, the impact, and how our world is so shaped by Christianity, how a lot of the foundational things that we value in our culture come directly from the teachings of Jesus, directly from Scripture, the value of freedom, the value of justice, generosity, and charitable giving, and charities come from the Christian faith, equal rights, and the value of education, and all our universities were started as Christian institutions and hospitals started by Christians. The reason we have all these things, we think they're normal. We're swimming in a culture, we don't quite see how it works and how we have it, but we're living with this, the kingdom of God, the fruit of the kingdom of God. Jesus came, came to talk about the kingdom of God. We're living with the, the historicity and the outworking of people living out the message of Jesus, building all these things in our civilization and around the world. And we're living with the kingdom of God around us, but we're blind to it because we've denied God because we've got those stubborn hearts that don't want to follow God. The real genius to following Jesus is this, is that we can face, we're equipped to face any death. Life is full of death, isn't it? Life is a joyful thing, can be a joyful thing, can be a precious thing, but it's also a tragic thing, isn't it? We have a, life is a mixture of hope and tragedy. We face literal death. Our hearts will give way someday. How do you face your own death? Well, for Christians, because we believe that Jesus came back from the dead, we have so much hope, we have enormous hope beyond this life. This life that death is actually just a doorway, it's just a transition. Well, I, I end my consciousness here, it carries on with God forever. We face all kinds of death. We face the death of our preferences. We have to die to our desires all the time. We face the death of our ideas and the dreams that we've held. We face the death of our own character. Things, Our weaknesses have to die. We have to be humble and honest about our faults and our failings. We have to die in that way. And sometimes we die, our character dies in other ways that sometimes we're criticized or maligned in other ways and we lose social capital and we, have, we die in that way. What, what do people think of me now? And that's painful when that happens. How do you face that? 
Well, Christians, we, we believe in resurrection, that anything that dies will be brought back. That's the power of accepting the identity of Christ, of putting your hope in Christ, because we face all kinds of deaths. You know, we, we're going to lose love, the love that we have. Those around us that we love, we're going to lose that love at some point. We're going to lose hope at some point. It's dangerous when you lose hope. We can lose stability in our lives. Stability is... If you've ever been through something, through some kind of awful trial, you, you've lost, you, maybe you've lost finances, you've lost your health, you've lost all kinds of things. You, you, you realize how fragile, you're, you're in the perfect place to realize how much you need God. The most dangerous thing is to have a comfortable life and have lots of resource. Because it's tempting to think, I don't need God. I don't need other people. I don't need those things. You only have to lose it for a moment to realize how fragile you are and how much you need God and everyone needs God. And people don't like religion because they say it's a crutch, but you know what? Everyone needs a crutch. If you're a human being, you need a crutch. But religion's more than that. Faith in Jesus is more. It's not just a crutch. It's resurrection. It's leaping. It's singing. It's dancing. It's joy in God. We, we have faith that we can have a fresh start no matter what death we face, that we can be restored no matter what death we face. This is the glorious thing about the Christian faith. And it's not just true for, for those of us who believe, it's not just true for ourselves that we say, I believe that Jesus can bring things back to life, that I can have hope. It's not just that, but it's that when we see trouble in the world, when we see people struggling in the world, what do we do as believers, as followers of Jesus? We say we want to extend that resurrection love and that resurrection power to other people to shine a light brighter than any darkness that we see in the world, to overcome the darkness. It says that in Scripture, that the light has come. Jesus is the light, and he shines his light that overcomes the darkness. And Jesus, he has the solution to death. It's in him. It's in him. We're going to have two people baptized at the end of our service, so stick around. Don't leave too soon. Stick around. We've got two powerful stories of people following Jesus and being baptized today. This is the solution of Jesus. And what pushes people over the edge to come to faith in Jesus is realizing his grace, his radical grace. The disciples talked about this all the time in the, a lot of the writings in the New Testament. They talk about the grace of Jesus. The very last line of the Bible talks about the grace of Jesus. Here is the grace of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just demand that we give our lives to him. He does demand that. So by the way, if you're interested in following Jesus, you have to give up everything. That's the call. You give up everything, but it's worth it. It's, it's, it's so worth it. And you, deep down, you know it's true. Because we're designed to worship something. If we're not, see, see we're, we're enslaved to something. We all, we all have masters. The best master is Jesus. Jesus doesn't just come and just demand that we give up everything for him. He came and gave up everything for us. See, if you're, if you're in a relationship with someone and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm not sure if I can trust this person or if they really love me, so I'm not going to go all in unless I see them go all in first. And then that other, that other person goes all in. So then you say, oh, okay, I can go all in. Who has the greater love? Who has the greater love? The first, the person that goes all in without knowing for sure if the other one will. That person has the greater love. 
And that's what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He took our consequence. He took our death for us. We know it's grace because he did it for us. We know it's grace because he did it before we were born, before we even heard the message, before we were even interested in him. He did it for us. He did it. We know it's grace because we didn't deserve it. We know it's grace because we can't lose it. It can't be taken away from us. It has to be grace. It has to be a, grace means it's a free gift. That Jesus dying on the cross, taking away our sin, setting us free from the forces of evil in the world and spiritual darkness, setting us free from all of that, it has to be a gift to us. Otherwise, otherwise, we can justify ourselves. Otherwise, we're those who are self-righteous, who act like we're better than others, who become those who actually harm other people out of our own piety. The power of the good news of Jesus is that you cannot save yourself. The only hope is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has the greater love. He made the first move, which means now you can rest assured in that and say, okay, now I know his level of love. That's why people come to the conclusion, I can give everything to Jesus. Now, I've got to tell you, it's still a struggle. I'm a, I've been a Christian many years. Many people in this room have been Christians many years. It's a constant journey of turning your life over to Jesus. We understand that, right? But once you, once you step through that, and you put on those glasses and you see reality for the first time. That's what, that's what becoming a Christian is like. It's like someone whose their eyesight has slowly gotten dim and, and, and foggy. And, and then they get glasses and they're like, wow, I can see color again. I can see things again. That's what Christianity is like. Like this is the way the world should be. I've been healed of my blindness in that regard. If you face any barriers to the Christian faith, Face your barriers. There is nothing more important than getting answers for your barriers. There is nothing more important than defeating the barriers that are holding you back from having a relationship with your maker. God made you. He designed you. He loves you. You're his prized possession. He's got a plan for you, a purpose for you. And he's calling you in. He's calling you in today. If you already believe in Jesus, celebrate. Celebrate that you found it. What joy that you found it. You found it. Not because of your own ingenuity, your own in intellect, out of his sheer grace. How humbling is that? But if you don't know it today, come in. Come in. Let's consider how to respond to today's service and today's sermon. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that we can have confidence in your resurrection. Thank you that there, there are clues, that there's evidence, historical eyewitness accounts that we can look to as reasons. But Lord, thank you that you give us the faith to believe and that the belief that we have has given us so much joy that no matter what darkness we face, we have hope. No matter what death we experience, we have resurrection faith to believe that you will turn it around that when we pass from this life to the next life we know that that place is so much better we know it's so much better we're longing for heaven longing for that place we have hope in that future but Lord help us in the here and now help us to shine 
that light in the here and now. Help us to live like Jesus in the here and now, to love those around us, to bless those around us, to help those around us, to be kind, to forgive. Just as I was praying, I just felt like there's somebody here who struggling with unforgiveness. Somebody has done something so horrible and terrible. You just think, how could I ever forgive it? If that's you, it's only Jesus. Jesus can help you forgive. If you surrender to him and receive his forgiveness, you'll find the power to forgive.